The Birth Circle podcast features experts in all the nuanced areas of pregnancy, birth, and postpartum with the aim of helping women make the choices that will keep them safe, healthy, and empowered. We respect all birth choices and believe in supporting informed consent and evidence-based practices. Nothing said on this podcast should be taken as medical advice. You should always seek the advice of a competent professional for your care. Welcome to the Birth Circle podcast. This is Sarah with Birth Circle, and today I have Vuan Foster. And Vuan is an MPH candidate, super passionate about helping change hospital policy and closing the gap in in um, maternal fetal care, maternal fetal medicine. And she's also had two second trimester losses. So this is going to be a little bit more of a heavy episode, but I'm really excited that Vuan is willing to share her story with us. Thank you for being here, Vuan. Thank you for having me. So tell us about your background. How did you get into this um, this crazy world of <laughs> birth? <laughs> sure. So I have a bachelor's of public health from William Patterson University. I'm currently completing my MPH, which is a master's of public health at Montclair State University. Um, so I've been in this work for a while now. Um, after graduating, I worked at a hospital for quite some time, and now I am founding my own organization called Life After Two Losses, and this is, came about after I've suffered two second trimester preventable pregnancy losses. They were completely preventable. So tell us what happened with yeah. the first. Tell us your story. Yeah. So I've been diagnosed with what's called the incompetent cervix, meaning as you get further along in your pregnancy, um, the pregnancy becomes heavy and your cervix starts to open up. And then what happens is the amniotic fluid and the sac kind of like funnels through the cervix and then it pops your water. And typically after that happens, the pregnancy is just not good anymore. Right. So, so it's basically the weight it, the weight of the pregnancy kind of opens your cervix, whether it likes it or not. Got that it. is correct. Um, there are tests that can be performed on women, which I've been told they are deemed too expensive to do them on every woman. Um, but if we did these tests, then they would prevent women from not having multiple pregnancy losses before finding this out. What kind of so, tests are these? Um, it's a simple test. So it's a test that they would typically do when you first find out you're pregnant, and it's a transvaginal ultrasound. So typically, when you first find out you're pregnant, you're too the pregnancy is too small to do the ultrasound on the outside. So what they do is they take a transvaginal instrument and they insert it inside, and that's how you typically find out you're pregnant. So that same procedure or ultrasound basically lets you, it measures your cervix. It lets you know if your cervix is open, if your cervix is soft. So so yeah. some women, when they get pregnant, their cervix just gets soft. It's supposed to get hard and tight and strong, but in some women, it just gets softer and softer and softer. And, and it begins to open up. Yeah. That's why we call it incompetent. <laughs> Yeah. A dumb cervix. Okay. <laughs> Got it. So m many women that have this will suffer multiple losses before it's discovered? Well, what, what typically happens is you will suffer one loss before they will diagnose you. So after that loss, um, instead of getting the procedure that I have now, they say to you, oh, next pregnancy, you could try a transvaginal cerclage. 
which I've come to find out after having it that a transvaginal cerclage is only a 24% chance that it would get, no, sorry. It's an 85% chance that it will get you to 24 weeks. And we all know that the chances of 24 weeks of surviving is like slim to none. So had I would have known that this is the procedure I would have gotten the second time around, I would have went with what I have now but I just feel like the information was not available to me. Right. Okay. So that, uh, the cerclage, they, what is that? Is that stitching of the cervix? Yeah. So what they did for me in my second pregnancy was they stitched up my cervix at 18 weeks when they noticed that it was starting to open up and it's supposed to be like a preventable cerclage that holds that when I lost my second daughter and my water broke, that cerclage was still tight, but my pregnancy was still funneling through. Okay, so your first, you didn't know you lost you lost your baby. The second one, you knew, so they stitched up your cervix, hoping that that would hold. And yet, yeah. the pressure of the pregnancy still broke your water, and your pregnancy was ending. The baby was coming, and your cervix was stitched closed. Yes, they had yes. to take the stitch out because I was in active labor. They had to take the stitches out because you were in active labor. Oh my gosh! Yes. Wow. Um, so. So how did you know, did you just start labor, like contractions? No, so I'll tell you how I do. Um, my first pregnancy, um, I think I was about 18 weeks. I had got out of the shower and everything with that pregnancy had was pretty much normal. I got out of the shower and I had dried off and I was like, whoa, like I noticed that some, there was like water. And I was like, I was like, maybe I'm not drying off properly. So I dried off again and then a gush of water came out. So I, went to, I called my doctor and... Um, because my doctor is well known in the hospital, they told me to just go straight to labor and delivery, even though I was under 20 weeks. So I work in the hospital. So typically you don't go up to labor and delivery until you're 20 weeks. But because my doctor was well known in that hospital, he wanted to monitor my case, monitor my case. He sent me upstairs to labor and delivery. Um, basically what they told me was, is that I should terminate. Because at this, like, chances are I would develop an infection, the pregnancy would become septic, and I would go into labor. So one of the things I ended up finding out, because I, I ended up going home, they sent me home, and I ended up going to the hospital that when I began going into active labor, which I didn't know, I was already at work. So I found out that they didn't really do the right thing. They should have gave me antibiotics to prevent the pregnancy from getting septic. But I feel like because I kind of just was like, I don't want to terminate, they kind of just set me on my own. Like, all right, well, you know, call us if you feel like you're going into labor. Call us if you get a temperature. But they didn't really do all the things they probably should have done for me. That seems irresponsible. I agree. Wow. But you could, could you feel the baby moving? The baby was still alive? No, the baby, so just because my water broke doesn't mean that the baby was dead. It just means that the, there was no fluid. The, the fluid is so that their lungs can develop. Without right. the fluid, it's very hard for their lungs to develop. So could they have put you on bed rest and saved the pregnancy? Is that is that a doable thing for incompetent cervix? or? So it, it, um, some doctors believe that bed rest doesn't work. Some doctors do. So it's very controversial. It, it depends on who your doctor is. But I am... Um, Went back to work, and less than a week later, um, I started like getting a fever one, and I felt like I was having like all this pain. So I just said, because I was already working at another hospital, I was like, I'm gonna just go upstairs and go to labor and delivery and just check on things. 
They ended up saying that the pregnancy was coming so septic that I needed to get induced and I needed to deliver the baby. And that experience in itself was awful because I was, I was, I worked at that hospital. So, and I dealt with a lot of the patient complaints that they had. So typically when I'm in uniform and I have my badge on and I announce who I am, people realize they're like, oh, we have to do things by the books here because this person's here. But when I'm delivering a baby and I have a gown on, I, I look like a young black girl. So um, a lot of, they were pushing for HIV testing. Like, oh, we need to get it. We need to get an HIV testing from her. And I'm like, you don't. You just need to call my doctors. I do not have HIV. And they kept assisting. In fact, I actually got stuck 20 different times to the point that I was screaming and aspirating because I couldn't breathe. Um, and they, the nurse had to finally yell, like, stop, stop. We are doing more harm to this patient. Like, oh let me gosh. get some more so what typically happens with me is I'm a very hard stick. I have very skinny veins because I've had a lot of different like procedures with women issues. Um, I have a lot of scar tissue on my veins and they tend to blow. So what you have to do with me is you kind of have to heat me up and then you can kind of get the blood flowing. But literally the anesthesiologist was taking off my socks like, oh, I'm going to get some blood from her regardless. And I was like screaming, no, no, like, please stop sticking me. You have to give me a second. He, he had already stuck me 20 times. Uh, seems like that would be illegal for them to stick you against your, your permission, right? Well, they, at that point, I was not giving consent anymore. So these are things that I'm now like learning and I am exercising those rights now. Um, but that was that. Then they moved me from labor and delivery to um, the floor where you would typically go after you have your have your baby. I didn't have my baby, so I didn't quite understand why they were sending me to a floor where you go after you have your baby. But once I got to that floor, I kind of asked the nurse who was not, you know, African-American. I said, well, what do I do when I feel like I have to push? She said, your baby's going to die, so you'll probably do it by yourself. Shit. So I'm like, oh, my gosh. Yeah, so I'm like, oh my God, I'm panicking. Like, I never delivered a baby before. My At this point, I haven't even told my family what's going on. Because remember, I was at work and I had just went to just check on things. But things had progressed so quickly, I didn't even get a chance to like inform my family as of yet. So I was there by myself. Oh All my gosh. Time. They expected you to deliver an 18-week pregnancy by yourself. Yeah, at this point, I think I was close to like 20 weeks at this point. Wow, closer to 20, but they just expect you to do this all by yourself in a recovery room. So I got out my work cell phone and I started calling the administrators in the hospital. Like, this is who I am. This is the job function that I do here. I know that everything that's happening to me is wrong, illegal in so many different ways. And like, I need, like, I need help. So what happened? <laughs> So then I got two residents, which I feel like this is why I did not, I would have never delivered here. And they were not prepared. And I was like, guys, this baby is about to come. Like, I feel the baby coming. And it was a mess. Like, they were trying to put on gloves. I was, like, holding my legs. It was just, like, one of the most awful experiences ever. So were you in active labor? Were you having contractions? Well, they had, they had gave me the medicine to induce me. So, yeah. I'm so confused. They gave, they gave you pit. And then they took you to the recovery floor? Yep. 
this like there's so so did you ever find out why they did that I don't I don't know oh my goodness when I finally did consult an attorney like I think about after you're dealing with all of this you just want to kind of forget about it and like right when I finally did um consult with attorney the statue was up Mm -hmm. I think that's a problem with a lot of birth birth issues is that you just just don't want to talk about it you just kind of want to move you know past it but that's the problem is people aren't talking about it. But now it's like, this is one of the reasons why I share my story and I teach um, women how to like advocate for themselves because now I know better. And even if I'm going to the hospital because I'm just not feeling well, um, when the doctor comes in the room, I'm like, you need to ask me for consent before you guys take any blood from me. And they're like, oh, she knows. She knows what the Ooh, correct thing is. Okay, let's talk about that for a minute because we want to yeah. equip our listeners with some Ooh. tools. When you're going into a medical situation. Anywhere. Yeah. Anywhere. Yeah. But especially yeah. a medical situation where you're not like the emergency room where it's not your regular doctor. Somebody doesn't know you. Um, yeah. The first thing you say is. So I say a lot of different things. It depends on the treatment. So typically I notice as a, I look very young. So I feel like as a young, I guess, African-American woman, um, if I'm not dressed in a business suit and I have like on some yoga clothes or something like that, I'm already perceived differently. Mm-hmm. So, I did so I'm like, until they act on it, I'm going to just continue to, to play the game. With them. So I went to have a mammogram done uh, because my mom is a breast cancer survivor and um, all of my grandfather's sisters died from breast cancer. So the tech proceeded to tell me that I was, why are you here? You are too young to be here. And I said, um, I think we should, it's not your job to do that. I think we should move on with this test. Let's do the test. I had to do, redirect her about three or four different times. By the time she was finished, I asked her the office manager, who was right, and um, I said to her, I don't want to see that tech again for further testing. She said, why? What's going on? I was like, I feel like basically she discriminated because of my race. I said, and let me explain something to you. I am a public health professional. I've worked at a number of hospitals. Um, I'm completing a master's degree. So I'm educated. Um, and her eyes just lit up like, uh-oh. <laughs> Um, I said a lot of the things that went on today were wrong. I said, and your doctor just told me that because of my history, I need to be here every year. So if I wouldn't let your tech continue to say those things to me and discourage me, I would have walked out of the door, but I needed to be here. Oh, yeah. And they can't afford to have you walk out the door. No, no, no. You need to be tested every year. Wow. So um, so they, so they, when you go into a medical situation, you can you can say maybe restating the procedure you're there for or like what other things could could they say who oh, um people who are advocating for themselves yep yep how do you advocate for yourself in many so different I feel like sometimes too um with my second pregnancy I showed up in to labor and delivery and I had told them I think my water broke they checked me out and they discharged me I got to the parking lot and the rest of my water fell onto the floor when I went back inside they told me well if it was going to happen anyway what what does it matter if it happened outside or in here So I feel like they cannot kick you out of a hospital facility. If you feel like something is wrong with you, you need to let them know, I'm not leaving until you guys further check me out because I know that something is not right. You may not believe it, but I know that something isn't right. And then I, for me, um, I'm also quoting facts. Um, uh, What is the father of gynecological, sorry, um, basically stated that black women did not, or we didn't feel pain. So I feel right. like that notion is still 
And so to, to, to today, um, I talked to another friend who said um, when my mom was in nursing school, they told her black women exaggerate everything. If they tell you they're having pain, just ignore them. They're exaggerating everything. What? And it's like, so we're teaching nurses that. We're teaching medical professionals that. Like, so no. And I'm, that's one of the things, like, I'm not leaving here. This is not right. I know my body. And I'm not leaving until you do some further testing. Wow. Yes. I kick you out. Yeah. Wow. So um, your second pregnancy, they, um, so you went back in and your water had fully broken. And then what did they tell you? Did they try and stop labor? Did they try and do so, anything? So I, they wasn't gonna, I wasn't in labor yet. So um, my doctor came um, and I said to him, I'm not leaving this hospital. He was like, you're not? I was like, no. I said, you promised me, la-. well, I didn't even think I would be here last time based off your instructions. You said to to me, if I made it to tw- if I was twenty weeks at that other pregnancy, or because I was like just before twenty weeks, so they wanted that exact twenty. I said, you told me if I was at twenty weeks, you would um, admit me into the hospital. You need to admit me because I'm not leaving here. Oh my goodness, because they were just trying to send you home again. Yes, because oh. they wanted me to terminate. So they always want to convince women to terminate, and I'm not terminating. If I have a heartbeat, I'm not terminating. We have all these medical advances going. No, I'm not telling you. Well, well, wait. Well, you, well, your body is terminating anyway, but they want you to just hasten the process and terminate directly. Is that what they're trying to do? Well, my body is not. My body is not technically terminating. Your water just broke. Your water. It's prom. So it's the phrase called prom, which is basically premature rupture of the membranes. That's what's happening. So they could technically. Put you on bed rest, put you on a ton ton of magnesium. They could prevent labor from starting. They could pump you full of antibiotics and you could stay pregnant. Yes. There's people that have done it and had successful pregnancies. Okay. So, but they were not going to do that. So they, but you got yourself admitted and then did labor, did labor start or? So we, there was like every day he was like, you know, I'm trying to, I'm pleading your case every day because they want to, I was like, I'm not leaving here. I'm not leaving here. So I ended up going into, I started, I was like, oh, I'm having pain. The nurse was like, I think you're having contractions. And I'm like, no, 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 this is not happening again. And I ended up um, having contractions. They had to cut the stitch, they said, because my body was in active labor. And literally, again, I told the resident who came in, I said, you need to get my doctor now because I'm about to deliver this baby. So she sort of opened my legs. I said, don't touch my legs. She said, oh, it's just blood clots. I was like, again, you don't know what you're talking about. Please go get my doctor. Literally, as soon as he um, came into the room, I said, I have my legs crossed because I'm holding this baby in. But I'm telling you, she's going to come out. So he like hurried up and got everything ready. As soon as I opened my legs, she came out. So again, I feel like we need to, we know our bodies. Like, especially some of us who are so in tune with our bodies. Like, I'm one who's very in tune with my body. Uh, I could be starting to get sick and I already know I'm getting sick. Like I'm very in tune. So we need to trust people. I've been in this body for how many years and you, somebody who's not in my body is going to tell me what I'm feeling. Wow. It doesn't make sense. But at the same time, our culture does kind of uh, play down uh, connection with our body. You know, that we sometimes people who are very connected with their body, they're seen as, you know, super crunchy or super woo woo or super whatever. It's almost like the culture expects you to not know about your own body and to just trust the medical establishment. Yeah. No. No, <laughs> you're not buying it. 
No. I'm trusting myself. I, yeah. I know that. And I also have learned that this is going to be horrible to say, but I feel like medicine is like, it's not science. They're practicing on us. Yeah, it's a practice. Yeah. Yeah. They yeah. are practicing on us. Okay, because 20 other people had these symptoms, you're grouping me in this category because this is what you've seen in the past. But they, there's no definite. You're not 100% sure. Well, and also we were talking about this before the recording started. You were right at the, you were right at the line where if you were in a different hospital with a different type of yeah. mentality, um, that yeah. baby would have been saved. That baby would have been put yeah. on, you know, put yeah. in um, resuscitation. But so the hospital were, I was at, they did for 23 weeks, they did nothing for 23 weeks. However, the hospital I delivered my first baby at, which I feel like because that experience was so bad, I would it would have never registered me to maybe try to go to that hospital. But at that hospital, at 23 weeks, they would have did everything they could for my baby to save her. Wow. So you didn't go back to the first hospital because they were so horrible to you the first time, but they did have a higher level NICU. And ah, dang it. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> but you know what? I feel like I'm a big person of what's meant to be is meant to be. I feel like um, I'm I'm like changing the game in a sense, because a lot of women, when they have losses, they're not talking about their losses. And not only am I talking about it, I'm like breaking it down like to the T. I have a number. I have a YouTube channel. I'm on literally all social media platforms and I'm sharing my story and I'm sharing all the experiences that I've gone through so that that can help somebody else. Um, I'm, like I said, I founded my own organization called Life After Two Losses, and basically our mission is to inform, support, and empower women and families to prevent them from suffering similar losses by providing advocacy through education. So had this not would have happened to me, and had I not would have went through this, how would I be able to do the work that I'm doing now? Wow. Wow. And you are, you're doing the work, you're getting your master's. And then what do you hope to do specifically? Where do you want to work? So I hope to um, either be administrator at a hospital and change hospital policies. And I hope to still be founding my own organization and Mm -hmm. doing the work that I'm doing with my own organization. Uh, Let's go back to the the hospital policies. Because I love this policy does not equal law. (laughs) So tell me, tell me about how easy it is or hard for hospital change policy if they know better. If, if they know better, do they always do better? Or what, what well, can compel a hospital to change a policy? So I feel like um, one of the jobs that I had when I was working at the hospital was I was a patient representative. So what we did was we looked at a lot of the complaints happening. And based off those complaints, we would change the way we were doing certain things. So I feel like change does happen. And I feel like sometimes with the hospital, um, the Prescani scores are going down and that equals money. So the hospital- Yeah, I was going to say, you you almost sound like a business. You almost like you're taking customer surveys and changing your business. So hospital, a hospital isn't God. (laughs) A hospital is a business. And if you, enough women complain about certain things, they'll change certain policies, right? Yeah, I agree. So what kind of policies did you see changed by just customer complaints? (laughs) patient Um, complaints yes so I would say um we we were not able to what we were a hospital in the inner city where people were waiting about sometimes 20 hours in the waiting room oh my gosh yes 
So we couldn't, obviously I, I can't change wait time because we still are the same facility. However, what we could do is we could offer patients different things. As far as I would come out there and I would um, talk, see if anybody had any concerns. That's not something we were doing before. So one of the things our patients were saying was before we just sat out here and we felt like nobody cared about us. But you come out here every hour and you address concerns. I made, I made sure people had water. If I talked to the um, nursing staff and they could have drinks, because you're waiting all those hours. Think about that. That's longer than I my know. work shift. Mm-hmm. Like that, and I know that the work that I did made a difference because I'm somebody who's always in the community and always about. Um, one time I was taking an Uber home from work and the guy was like, I know you. That voice. I know that voice. And I'm like, I, I don't know. I mean, I live around here. Oh my God. He was like, my fiance was laying on the floor in that waiting room. And so many people was walking back and forth, not doing anything. And you came, you made your announcement. And you was like, she can't lay here on this floor like this. And you were like, I said to him, like, I get she's in pain, but I went and got her a wheelchair. I got her off the floor. Another time I was in ShopRite and a lady just ran up to me and like hugged me. And I was like, and she's like, you don't remember me, do you? And I'm like, no, I'm Aww. sorry. She's like, you were at the hospital. Like, you really helped me. Like, I, I like things seem so bleak there. But when you have somebody like you that's working there, we know that there are some people that care about us. Wow. That's so, so cool. I to put that energy into my business and, you know, I feel like compassion is everything. Like, if you don't have compassion, you're in the wrong field. You don't need to be in the medical field. And I feel like some of these people just don't have compassion. Why did they get but, in the medical field, do you think? Maybe the money. <laughs> um, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not sure, but obviously not for the right reasons. Because the reason so, is to help people. Yeah, I was going to say, what's the balance between um, wanting to make good money? Because I don't think that you make that much better money than other things. You could be... a uh, man, you could be a, a great plumber and make more than a doctor. Um, I don't think that you have to, with less debt. <laughs> so what, what, what is it that draws people to the medical field? Do they- do Maybe you, it's status too. Because status. Maybe sometimes in people's families, it's expected that you're a doctor or a lawyer because those are acceptable professions. Do you see, though, that sometimes um, people come in and they are all wide-eyed and bushy-tailed and super excited about serving, but then they get broken by hospital policy? Or do you think it goes the other way around, that that broken people are? I feel like it depends. I feel like in the hospital that I was working at in the inner city, I think where they mess up is, is they need to hire more people from the community. Because I feel like people outside of the community are coming in and they honestly don't give a damn about the people. Um, They're driving in that parking garage. They never take a step, a foot outside of the community. When they find out, when I, my first day on the job, they was like, where did Buane go? It was like, she walked across the street for lunch and they're calling me like, oh my God, you cannot be out there with those people. And I was like, those people? And then one of the other girls was like, do you guys know she lives in this community? (laughs) Like, these are people, I guess. So then they were kind of like, but that's some of their mindsets. Like, Why don't they hire from the community? Are they just not, are they not applicants or are they? I'm, I'm not, I, I'm honestly not sure. I mean, there are some people from the community, but I noticed that the people in leadership roles are not from the community. Mm. They're not people of color. Got and I it. feel like you need that for people to understand the people and what's going on in this community. Yeah. And you need that no matter what racial tensions are there, you have to have somebody 
we can't like go to another country and expect like I can't go to China and expect to like instruct them on birth. (laughs) I don't know their cultural nuance. I don't know anything about, you know, their tradition. And you you have that within. Yeah, no. Yeah. You have that within communities here in the United States. Yeah, and I felt like when I had my loss, my first loss there, there was a lady next door to me who was Spanish speaking. And um, I took out like my phone and I went over to her and I was like, hey, I lost the baby too. And I communicated her with Google Translator. And she felt, you could tell she felt alone because she spoke Spanish. Mm-hmm. People were not speaking to her in Spanish. No. And I ended up taking her number, which as a patient rep, that is not allowed. You have to talk to people in their in their natural language. And if you can't speak it, you need to provide a translator. But what ends up happening is it's too much work for them. So they say, oh, yes, you agree? Yes. And of course they say, yes. And they're like, all right, check that off. Done. So I ended up taking her number down and I saw her when I was working again, maybe like um, a month after. And I said to the resident, I went over and I said, hi, how are you? And I said to the resident, why is she here? And he was like, get away from her. She's always here. She's having another loss. She just keeps getting pregnant. Just get away from her. And I'm just like, oh, oh I have so God. many feelings about that. <laughs> it's like, oh my, but this is, this is what they're like, this is what's happening. Wow. So as a, as a, a public health administrator, um, <laughs> You're going to go in and change all that, right? You're going to fix it, right? Is it going to be easy? Um, (laughs) I don't know. My goal is to start small. Like a lot of the work that I do um, with Life After Two Losses before, I feel like it's recently become a trend to speak out about racism. I was doing it before. I was um, sharing the statistics on our social media, which is like Black infants die at about five times the rate of white infants, regardless of protective factors. Black women are two to six times more likely to die from complications of pregnancy than white women. I was sharing these statistics for a couple years. Now everyone is like taking notice besides black people because now this racism is like at everyone's front door. But I've been doing this work before this has become a trend. Mm-hmm. People are now just taking notice. Finally. And do you think there will be change or do you think it'll just get swept under the rug again? No, I know there will be change. Things are different now. But they, I feel like nothing's ever been. Wow, that gives me a lot of hope because I just yeah, me too. wow. So, um, so your background isn't in, uh, in birth or postpartum, and yet you are in this position to have great change to, <laughs> to start great change. What do you think? Where did this all come from? Do you think? Yeah, so I'm a firm believer and I feel like um, things in my life are always coming full circle. And I feel like now they're coming full circle a lot faster. But prior to me, you know, being pregnant and whatnot, I actually worked in a hospital at maternal fetal medicine. Um, That's where I got my first experience with learning about the terms, um, transvaginal ultrasound, um, multiple losses. I learned like a lot of information there. So it was easy when I found out I was pregnant to just kind of go back into that environment because the same place that I had worked at, I ended up um, receiving care from the maternal fetal medicine there. Wow. So now you have all of the vocabulary and the background in public health. You're going to be um, forced to be reckoned with, really. 
I hope so. I hope so. But you know, the cool thing is, is that if we have change in maternal fetal medicine, it is only going to help in other areas too. I agree. You can't can't just have this island of amazing care in the hospital and it's only for pregnant women. Yes. No, I agree. I agree. And I think some of the issues are, is that um, it's a lot of, some of my white friends had said to me, like a lot of the things that you went through in your pregnancy would have never happened to me as a white woman. Like I have friends who have an incompetent cervix and their experience was nothing like your experience. Yeah. And even after my second loss, my doctor said to me, oh, why don't we just try a transvaginal cerclage again, just earlier on? And I'm thinking in my head, like, are you kidding me? I've had two losses. I've tried it you guys way. I'm not trying it that way anymore because I've done my research. Oh, yeah. So you said you have a new procedure done. Tell us about that. So I have a tack, which is called, um, uh, it's a, is it a transvaginal cerclage? No, I have a tack, which is a transabdominal cerclage. You can either get this done while you're pregnant early on, or you can get it done prior to being pregnant. So I had to wait three months after my loss because by that time, the cervix is back to normal. And what they do is they do a C-section cut across your abdomen, and they go in and tie your cervix prior to getting pregnant. I will never deliver vaginally again. However, this procedure is a 95% chance. Oh my goodness. So now, oh my gosh. So you are zipped up tight. So little swimmers can get up in, but nothing can get out. And it doesn't affect your periods. No, I still get them. (laughs) I mean, but they can still get out. No problem. You don't get any like backup or anything. Like, what if you were to get a blood clot? Would it be able to come out okay? Yeah. I guess I don't understand. Okay. And then, so now when you get pregnant, it will 95%. You have what? I'm going to share my screen with you. Oh, she's going to share her screen with me. I'll explain to you what we see. So, but from now on, you can only give birth C-section, but you have a 95% chance that it will not release and you lose the baby for that. Yeah, of course. But you know what? Of course, the share your screen option is not working. However, if you send everyone to the link in my video, there is a photo of what I had before and what I have now in my story because I kind of wanted to break it down so people could understand. And this ties my cervix up way prior to getting pregnant. So my doctor said if I got to 28 weeks, they would totally be happy. But if I went further, they would be happy as well. Well, yeah, obviously. <laughs> Let's go all the way to 40. Woo-hoo. So are you going to are you going to try and get pregnant again? Um, eventually I will. But right now I feel like um I am living my best life. Mm-hmm. I'm doing some things that I haven't been able to do while I was pregnant. I am back horseback riding. Um I am I had planned a great trip to Paris and to Thailand in March, but of course corona happened. But right course. now I feel like Yes, I'm really working on, and this is also part of my story that I want to help other women with, I'm working on getting my life back. Mm -hmm. And I'm working on showing other women how you get your life back. Because I feel like after losing a pregnancy, like one pregnancy, that's hard enough, but I've lost two. So it's, I know women struggle with getting, going back, how do you get your life back? So I feel like I've done a great job at doing that. So that's also part of my story. Just showing women how you get your life back. Yeah. So traumatic has happened to you. So traumatic. Yeah. I I was listening to your stories and I I have to agree with your friend. I can't, I mean, I've had traumatic births. 
I've had traumatic things happen, but not the way they happen to you. It's just mind blowing the difference in care and the difference of policy. And I just, it's just not fair. Yeah. What some other women are saying to me is they're acting like, how do I advocate for myself when I go to these hospitals? Some of the women are even saying like, man, I wish I could just pick you up and take you to my doctor's appointment with me. Right. You are so well informed. Some people have asked me like, are you an attorney? I was like, no, I'm not an attorney. They're like, well, because you know all the terms and you know what to say. Like, how did you do that? And I'm like, because I've been through something so horrible that I never want to go through it again. And I never want people around me to go through it again. So I have to keep myself well informed. Yes. Wow. Okay. So now the formal, and you talked about life after two losses, but give the listeners all the things, all the places they can find more connect with you and also just other resources, you know. Yes. So basically I'm on all social media platforms. I am on YouTube. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. I am on Twitter and LinkedIn. And people are saying too, that they're finding me via Google searches, which is like second trimester pregnancy losses, tech, and this is how they're finding my video and whatnot. So I need to find a way to, to when these celebrities talk about their losses, people are gravitating to them because they're in that light. But we need to find a way to connect ourselves to them so that people can also find our stories and they can connect with people who can answer back. Because one of a lot of things that people say to me is like, no matter what time of day is, you always respond to us. And the one lady I recently talked to was like, I feel awful. You just told me you're at work right now and you've been messaging me, like comforting me. Thank you so much. So a celebrity that shares their loss online and writes an article or whatnot, are they going to answer your questions? Mm-mm. Like no. you probably still feel alone. Oh, and something else I really should talk about. I partnered up with another maternal child health organization and we are offering free peer um, grief support for anyone who's lost um, pregnancies, has a stillborn or miscarriage. And we're doing that once a month. And wow. you can find on my social media and it's free. You just have to write. Yeah, see, that's the thing. You you can respond all you, but you're only one person. If we If we provide these platforms for women to support each other and to talk more openly about these things. And they can support each other. And so that's what you're, is it? So so I'm getting ready to start a fundraiser because I am working on building a website. And this website is going to host a number of resources. It's going to be a community for women to come. I feel like Instagram and like Facebook is great, but sometimes people are on there and they're trolling. And I don't want that. Like I want this website to be a safe place for women to come and get the things that they need. I'm going to share other women's story. And it's really going to be a place where we can connect with each other. Perfect. Wow. Okay. So they can find you YouTube, uh, youtube.com slash life after two losses. And it's the number two and Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and your website, life after two losses.com. And if they just Google my name, they'll find it. (laughs) I know you have such a cool name. V-U-A-N. Yes. Foster. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. I really do appreciate it. It's a really fascinating subject. And uh, thank you so much for being willing to tell your story. And I appreciate it so much. I know sometimes when people have had loss, it's like you almost don't know what to say for fearing you're going to say the wrong thing. But just talking to you, 
<laughs> I really appreciate knowing all the details and following your story. Thank you. No problem. No problem. Thank you so much for having me. Please visit us at birthcircle.com, join our Facebook groups, or find us on Instagram and Pinterest. We hope you'll use our resources to support your birthing experience. And thank you to LaunchPod Media, who produces these podcasts.